Hello. Welcome to the Myths and History of Ancient Greece. Chapter 46. The Cloud Rising in the West. The Romans and the Greeks have been bound together throughout history. Even the legend of the foundation of the city of Rome springs from Greek mythology. The legend of Rome says that it was founded by Romulus, who was a descendant of the Trojan hero Aeneas. He and his twin brother Remus were orphaned and raised by a wolf. Later they found some hilly land near the Tiber, and settled on two of the hills now known as the Seven Hills of Rome. Remus chose a hill called the Aventine, and Romulus chose another called the Palatine. Soon, though, they began to fight, and Remus was killed. Romulus began to build on his hill, and founded the great city of Rome. Early Rome, so the legend goes, was governed by Romulus and then six more kings. After Romulus came Numa, who was said to be wise and peaceful. He constructed the first temple of Janus. The doors of the temple were opened if Rome was at war, and closed if Rome was at peace. The next king was Tullus Hostilius, who was aggressive and warlike. He defeated some of the local tribes around Rome and built the first senate house. The fourth king was Ancus Marcius, who was the grandson of Numa. He defeated a tribe called the Latins and extended Roman territory to the sea. The last three kings of Rome were members of the Tarquinius family. Tarquinius Priscus defeated the civilization to the north of Rome called the Etruscans. The king built the Circus Maximus, a great area for chariot racing. Tarquinius Priscus was assassinated by the sons of Ancus Marcius, but their rebellion failed and Servius Tullus, a man who had married one of the king's daughters, became the next king. He scored more victories over the Etruscans. He was a popular king, but he was murdered by Tarquinius Superbus, who married his daughter. Legend has it that Tarquinius Superbus was a tyrant, a terrible king, who held on to power by executing his enemies and making everyone very frightened. His son and heir, Sextus Tarquinius, was said to be even worse. Eventually the last king was overthrown by a group of senators led by Lucius Junius Brutus. The important people of the city of Rome decided they would never again be ruled by a king. They took control of the city and ruled themselves, forming the Roman Republic. The word Republic comes from the Latin, the language of the Romans, meaning res republica, which means public matters or matters of state. Legend has it the Republic was founded in 508 BC. The Republic was a very strong type of government. The Roman civilization flourished and they began to conquer some of the surrounding peoples. Most emerging civilizations had their difficult times and it was no different from the Romans. It nearly all fell apart in 387 BC when a Celtic tribe called the Gauls stormed into the city, captured it and sacked it. They were eventually paid to go away. So much was destroyed during the sack that all historical records from before that time were lost. That is why most of the history of the kings and the early republic is legend, and we are not sure whether it really happened. From this time on, though, there is much more evidence, and we can be a lot surer of what really took place. The Romans recovered very quickly from the sack, and spent the next 80 years conquering and expanding their territory. By 290 BC, they were in control of most of the middle of the Italian peninsula. Then they turned their eyes southwards. Now, who were the people who lived in the southern part of Italy? Yep, the southern part of Italy was mainly populated by Greeks and was called Magna Graecia. The Roman civilization had plenty of contact with the Greeks of Italy and took most of their religion, art and culture from them. They had preferred to trade with the Greeks of Italy rather than conquer the region. Sadly for the Greeks, though, 
this didn't last. In the first quarter of the 3rd century BC, the Romans changed the way they behaved towards their cultured neighbours. They decided they wanted all of Italy for themselves. Well, they almost certainly decided they wanted it for themselves, but we can't be quite sure, because the Romans were a sneaky lot. They were too clever to just go around conquering without a good excuse. Most of the history of Roman conquests is built upon the Romans inventing a good excuse for war and then not leaving when the war was over. Their conquest of Magna Graecia was no exception. In 282 BC, the Greek city of Thurii was having a bit of trouble with its non-Greek neighbours, the Lucanians. The dominant Greek city in southern Italy at the time was Tarentum, and it would probably have made sense for the Greek citizens of Thurii to ask for help from their Greek neighbours. For some reason, though, they chose not to. Instead, they turned their attention to the north and the growing civilization of Rome. They asked the Romans to come and help them fight off the Lucanians. The Romans accepted willingly and sent some ships loaded with troops to garrison the city. Unsurprisingly, the democratic rulers of Tarentum saw Roman soldiers in one of the fellow Greek cities as very insulting. Worse, though, some of the ships were blown off course and arrived too close to Tarentum itself. The Tarentines sank the ships and then sent an army to Thurii. The Roman garrison soon left. It seemed as if the Greeks had shown their strength to these newcomers from the north and that the Romans had been put in their place. Anyone who knows anything about the Romans, though, knows they never let a defeat get in the way of their ambitions. In fact, when they were defeated they liked to make sure they came back for another go. You don't get to conquer most of the known world by letting a defeat or two stop you in your tracks. The Romans sent envoys to Tarentum and then claimed that the envoys had been badly treated. They complained they had been insulted and that their Latin language had been mocked. They even claimed that one of their envoys had been pooed on by a citizen of Tarentum. Armed with these made-up complaints, the Romans declared war on Tarentum. Tarentum turned to a Greek from across the Adriatic. They asked King Pyrrhus of Epirus, who we met in chapter 43, for help. The king sailed over to Italy and joined his Greek friends in fighting against the Romans. With him, he brought some phalanxes borrowed from Antiochus of the Seleucid Empire and from Antigonus Gonatus of Macedonia. Pyrrhus was convinced the Romans would not be able to stand up to a good old Macedonian phalanx. Just to make sure, he brought a few war elephants too. For a while, it seemed that Pyrrhus might be right about the strength of the Romans. The king, with 30,000 men, fought the Roman legions, also totalling around 30,000, at the Battle of Heraclea. It would be the first time, but definitely not the last, the Roman legion came up against the Macedonian phalanx. The battle was furious and bloody. Both sides made many attacks, both sides lost many men, and neither gained much at all. Pyrrhus had been holding his war elephants in reserve, but he realised he needed to gamble and throw them into the battle. He launched them towards the Roman cavalry. The poor horses had never seen these huge thundering beasts before, and they were terrified. They scarpered. The rest of the legion became confused. Pyrrhus seized his chance and sent in his cavalry from Thessaly. The Romans ran away. Pyrrhus and the Tarentines had won the battle, but at great cost. After failing to agree the terms of peace, another battle was fought near Apulia in 279. Again, Pyrrhus won, but again he lost an awful lot of men. The king is said to have remarked that if he kept on winning like this, then soon all would be lost. Victories won at great cost, so they don't seem like victories at all, and now called Pyrrhic victories after King Pyrrhus. 
The king of Epirus went to Sicily to help the Greek cities there fight against Carthage, and then returned home. On his way, he fought the Romans again at Beneventum in 275. The result was a bloody draw with lots of death. Soon after the battle, Pyrrhus finally arrived home to Epirus. A couple of years later he was killed, as we know, after a woman threw a roof tile at his head. The Romans did not take their defeats by Pyrrhus lying down. By 272 BC, they had forced Tarentum to surrender. The most powerful city in Magna Graecia was under Roman control, and it wasn't long before the rest followed. Some were given the chance to rule themselves, but they all had to recognise Rome as their masters. Maybe the Romans would have turned their attention to the rest of Greece after defeating the Greek cities of Italy, if they had had the chance. They didn't, though, because they had battles to fight elsewhere. Carthage was a city founded before records began on the north coast of Africa. The Carthaginians controlled most of the North African coast, Corsica, Sardinia, some of Sicily and a bit of southern Spain. The Romans and Carthaginians argued over Sicily, just as King Pyrrhus had predicted, and ended up fighting each other for the next 23 years in what became known as the First Punic War. Both sides learned from previous defeats and added new weapons to their armories. The Carthaginians used war elephants and the Romans built their first warships. The Romans emerged victorious and kicked the Carthaginians out of Sicily. The Carthaginians, though, merely planned and waited till they were a bit stronger before attacking again. The planning and attacking were masterminded by one man. A Carthaginian general named Hannibal Baraka very nearly defeated Rome and put an end to their growing civilization. Hannibal's father had made him promise never to be a friend of Rome, and Hannibal lived up to that promise. In 219, Hannibal broke a treaty with Rome by attacking the city of Saguntum in Spain. The Romans, much annoyed by this, declared war on Carthage, and then Hannibal took loads more territory. Hannibal went further, doing something that nobody had expected. He took thousands of men and 36 war elephants on a long journey. First he ferried them across a river using camouflage rafts, and then he drove them across the Alps and into northern Italy. The Romans were shocked. They had thought this was impossible. By the time Hannibal arrived in Italy, he had lost an awful lot of men, but he took on the Romans with enthusiasm. In December 218, at the Battle of the Trebia, he tricked the Roman general, Tiberius Sempronius Longus, into attacking and defeated the Roman army, killing over 10,000 of them. In June 217, he took them on again at the Battle of Lake Trasimene. This time, he lured the Roman army into a narrow path by the lake and then launched his forces at them from three sides. Again, he inflicted a terrible defeat upon them, killing about 15,000. The Romans were dismayed, but worst was to come. In 216, the Romans suffered their most devastating defeat. Hannibal moved south and seized a Roman supply depot near the town of Cannae. The Roman Senate demanded action, and a huge army of 87,000 men was sent to take on the Carthaginians. Hannibal, with about 40,000, planned on what to do when they arrived. As usual, Hannibal's planning was supreme. The Romans, who learned very quickly, didn't want to get into a situation where they could be tricked. They remembered that Hannibal had tricked them at the last two battles, and so decided they'd fight on a nice open battlefield so no nasty ruses could be used. The Roman leaders, Paulus and Varro, packed the centre of their army with infantry many ranks deep and put the cavalry on the two flanks. They thought their heavily packed infantry would be able to break the Carthaginian lines. 
Hannibal was too clever for them. He put his weakest infantry in the centre and advanced them forward so they met the Roman forces. At the same time, he sent his strongest cavalry on the left to attack the Roman horsemen. The mounted Carthaginians were too strong and well trained and the Roman cavalry retreated, allowing the Carthaginian riders to get behind the Roman army. They went all the way round and routed the Roman allied cavalry on the other flank, who were already under attack from the front. Then Hannibal pulled his masterstroke. He got his weaker infantry in the centre to retreat slowly, but ordered his stronger African infantry on the flanks not to retreat. The Roman army followed the retreating infantry until they were almost surrounded, and then Hannibal ordered the final attack. The strong infantry and the cavalry charged at the Romans from the sides and from the rear. There was no escape. They were so shut in that many of them couldn't even raise their weapons. They were slaughtered. 600 of them were killed every minute until about 65,000 of them were dead. Only 14,000 escaped and the rest were captured. Hannibal only lost about 10,000 men. His officers urged him to advance on Rome, but Hannibal, probably correctly, decided he didn't have enough fighters left to win a final battle against the Romans. Instead, the great Carthaginian commander decided to stir up rebellion in order to give himself more chance of an eventual victory. The Greek cities of southern Italy were encouraged to revolt, and soon Tarentum and most of the other important cities of Magna Graecia cancelled their allegiances to Rome. Hannibal then turned east looking for allies, and he soon found one. Philip V of Macedon was eager to join with the Carthaginian general against Rome. In the next chapter, we'll backtrack just a little bit and learn about the first few years of Philip's reign and his alliance with Hannibal. We will then see how it turns out for him as he tries to deal with the cloud rising in the west. So, until then, have a great week and I'll speak to you next time.